Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we bring you part two of our interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Isabel Wilkerson, her new book grows out of her widely acclaimed book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which tells the history of the Great Migration when waves of African Americans moved out of the South to escape racism, terrorism, and so much more, only to face it again in the North. In this new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, Isabel Wilkerson argues that America's racial hierarchy should be thought of as a caste system similar to what she calls the world's most recognized caste system in India. And she looks at Nazi Germany borrowing from Jim Crow laws of the United States. But before we go into all of that, it is so fascinating that your book, where you look at the United States, you look at India, you look at this issue of caste, and you look at African Americans in this country, at this time, when Kamala Harris has just been chosen by Joe Biden to be the vice presidential running mate. Um, she has an unusual biography. She's the first African-American woman to run on a major presidential ticket. Um, but her mother is from India. She is African-American and the first Indian-American. In light of all this, could you talk about your response to the choice of Kamala Harris as vice presidential candidate? Well, this is truly a groundbreaking moment in American history. Um, it has taken 244 years uh, for a woman of color, uh, a woman of African descent, a woman of Indian descent, to uh, rise to the level of being a, a, a candidate on a major party ticket in the United States. So this is uh, this represents so much intersectionality in our own personal story, but also so many long-standing barriers that are being crossed today. So that brings us to, I mean, this joining together of these two issues. In your book, Cast, um, you write about uh, Bimro Ambedkar, uh, the intellectual leader of India's Dalit uh, movement, um, what people call the untouchable movement. He wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois in 1946, there is so much similarity between the position of the untouchables in India and of the position of the Negroes in America, he wrote. Can you talk about who he was in relation to Gandhi in India? And then W.E.B. Du Bois's response. Well, um, uh, Gandhi was from a family that was um, upper, an upper caste—one uh, of the upper castes. And uh, so he was the leader in the effort toward independence for the entire country of India and is known, obviously, for his uh, nonviolent uh, uh, approach to, uh, to achieving independence and to protesting. Uh, Dr. Ambedkar was a leader of the, uh, of the Dalit movement. He was born into what was then known or called as, the untouch as, as one of the untouchables, one of the groups that was viewed as untouchable. And he went on to uh, achieve uh, great heights in, uh, in his education. He actually attended Columbia University, and he uh, got many advanced degrees. And then he returned to lead the movement toward uh, first of all, uh, the Indian Constitution, 
but then also continuing to advocate on behalf of his of his people. And he uh, is one of the uh, of the is, is an example of how people in India, particularly those who had been on, uh, assigned to uh, the lowest caste had been looking and aware of, of what was going on across the oceans, across continents, of what was going on here in the United States, and made common cause or recognized the common cause between the plight of the Dalits, formerly known as untouchables, and of African Americans here in this country. So Dr. Ambedkar reached out to W.E.B. Du Bois, who was at that time uh, obviously one of the, the leaders of, of African American intellect and thought and and philosophy reached out to him uh, in recognition of the connections between between the two peoples and the two countries in terms of the hierarchies. Both of them recognized that hierarchy, infrastructure, the infrastructure of our divisions, that a caste system was an appropriate term to uh, to look at how both uh, peoples were being treated in their respective societies. Though the countries are very very different, they share uh, some somewhat they share in the ways of subordinating the very lowest caste people in their countries. Isabel, I wanted to ask you, you write that just before the turn of the 21st century that death rates among middle-aged white Americans, uh, particularly those with uh, uh, less education, began to suddenly rise uh, because of suicides, uh, drug overdoses, uh, liver disease from alcohol abuse. And you actually you say that the political scientists have given it a name, dominant group status threat. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how that uh, informs our understanding of the Trump phenomena uh, in the past few years. But also, to what degree was this this sense of dominant group threat as a, re a result of the growing uh, non-white populations of the United States? And to what degree maybe it was the um, uh, the economic crises that began to affect uh, uh, working class whites in this country as the wealth gap continued to grow? Well, yes, this is a study uh, that came out in uh, late 2014 by esteemed economists uh, who identified these as deaths of despair. Uh, they seem to be going against all uh, other um, uh, trajectories for all other groups of people uh, in the United States, even in the Western world, uh, where this one group of people, middle-aged, uh, white, generally uh, people of lesser education, were dying uh, at, at higher rates than, uh, than other people. In other words, the rate of, of deaths were, were rising among them, while the rate of death was, right, was lowering for, or uh, 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 plateauing for other groups. Uh, and so there was a question as to what could be causing this. And dominant group status threat is a term that's used by uh, political scientists, scientists to give us a window into what, is, what are the pressures uh, that are facing people who have been born into a hierarchy that we don't really call it that, but they've been born into a hierarchy many generations long in which uh, through no fault of their own, no action on their part, were put in the position of, of inherited elevation, of inherited um, uh, uh, spaces in which uh, things that were denied other people were accorded them without even even realizing it. Um, such things as just being able to get a mortgage, for example, during much of American history, African Americans were not permitted. They were denied mortgages in, in what we know as the redlining um, uh, program of the where the federal government would not uh, back mortgages for African Americans. So this is something that people could take for granted. They could take for granted if they fell into the category, were part of the, the dominant caste, again, with no action on their part, uh, that accorded them uh, the, the rights and, and uh, of 
and stature that made life very different for them. And when things began to, uh, when, the de- when the demographics of the country uh, begins to change, when there are uh, the rising up of, uh, of people who had not been part of the dominant group, people who had been subjugated for, for much of American history, began to get the opportunities that grew out of the civil rights movement, civil rights legislation. The idea of, of, of African Americans, I, I must say, being able to really enter into the mainstream of American life is a very new phenomenon in this country when you think about the 400 years of, of, uh, of people uh, being uh, uh, having been enslaved in this country, 400 years from the time of enslavement, the beginning of enslavement, 246 years of enslavement, uh, followed by 100 years of Jim Crow. So the idea of African-Americans entering the mainstream and uh, being able to uh, uh, participate fully as citizens is a really a fairly new concept. And so with the uh, with the changes in the opportunities that uh, arose for people who had been subjugated for much of American history, entering the mainstream and putting, uh, by their entering, uh, changing the dynamics of what we even consider to be uh, who can do what in our country, this puts tremendous pressure on people who had been for generations uh, able to assume that certain things would be going certain ways in this country. Uh, there are tremendous impacts, uh, impact that people experience as a result of this. These deaths of despair are really uh, ones that could be avoidable. Uh, these are people who are succumbing to alcoholism, succumbing to drug abuse. The opioid crisis is, is all uh, a part of these deaths of despair. And a lot of it, I'm suggesting, uh, grows out of the changing uh, dynamics and the, the changing expectations of a hierarchy that's in, that seems to be in flux when people who have been in a fixed place for so long um, begin to, to shift and move about and to move, move into spaces where they had not been before. You also raise the uh, the issue that rarely gets talked about is of the differences between uh, Native African Americans and uh, Black immigrants, either from Africa or the West Indies, and how they are often by this caste system rewarded for distancing themselves from African Americans. Um, one example that I, I, I came across often in covering public education in this country is that uh, it seemed to me from uh, my, my observations that uh, uh, immigrants from the West Indies or Africa were more uh, prone to wanting to have their children go to charter schools versus regular public schools uh, than uh, Native African Americans. I'm wondering uh, how how does this work out in in, in your uh, in your analysis? Well, in a in an artificial graded hierarchy with with the work that ranks human value on the basis of one's proximity to those who are dominant, those who are on top, it's human nature to want to to do whatever you can to survive in that hierarchy. People who arrive new to this country have to figure out how to navigate it. What will what will bear the most fruit? What will benefit them the most? How will they survive in a forbidding society, for, forbidding economy at times? And so, uh, it's very natural for people to want to to do whatever they can to protect their children. But one of the things that happens in a, in in this in a caste system, as it is evidenced in the United States, is that. Um, most every other group, uh, if, if you're coming in from Europe, for example, um, the Eastern and Southern Europeans were encouraged to quickly shed their uh, their originating uh, ethnicity. To to many people, change their names in the early uh, decades of the 20th century in order to assimilate. Uh, they they uh, changed their names. They dropped the accents. They did everything they could to become 
Americanized um, because that was going to be the way that they could blend in with the predominant group. That was what they were being rewarded for blending in with the dominant group, which is human nature for someone to want to do. However, for people who have been of African descent uh, arriving to the United States, that this group alone, it shows you how casteism works, would be encouraged to distance themselves from those who have been uh, assigned to the bottom, which are people who have been descendants of, of enslaved people. They would be encouraged to do this. They were, would be rewarded for, separate, for separating or creating a distance from themselves. Uh, and, and, and the way that society did this is to actually encourage people. They found, people could find, there are many studies about this, that people who are of African descent but um, not uh, native, not in indigenous people who had been uh, descended from enslavement. They actually uh, were singular in being encouraged to retain their accents, to retain their connections, uh, or to emphasize uh, that they were actually from someplace other than uh, from originating from from the United States. So that, that, that this this group alone is an indication of how a caste system can adjust or to, can influence people's behavior in order to survive by uh, by doing what is necessary to uh, win the favor or to be in good favor of, of those who actually have been dominating uh, who are, or the dominant group. And so these are the ways that a caste system can further divide. And at the subtitle of this book, The Origins of Our Discontents is There for a Reason. It indicates how in some ways all of us are like uh, are like uh, a pl a players in a, on a stage. You know, I think about the word caste in many ways that the word caste is used in, our, in, in, our, in English. And one of them is the caste in a play. And so everyone, if we are uh, all uh, characters in a play, you might say, with roles to play, roles to perform. On the play, there's on the stage, there's someone who's stage left, stage right, someone in the front, someone in the back, and everyone knows they're, where they're supposed to be on the stage. Everyone knows their lines, and if you're very, very invested in it, you know that you know very well about it. You know everyone's role. You know everyone's. You know the entire script uh, that everyone is to play. And so, whenever someone steps out of their place in that on that stage, it has an effect on everyone else. This is an interconnected, interlocking ranking system in which everyone. Uh, has to learn where everyone fits in order to survive in it. These are these are messages that we receive from very early in childhood. Messages that everyone receives about who is who is expected to be where in the society and how they are expected to behave. Caste is often about boundaries and setting the boundaries and policing the boundaries. And one way that we see that is where uh, people who are in the dominant group have been often seen in recent years, uh, these videos where they're in inserting themselves into uh, the everyday lives of African-Americans, for example, or black people, uh, for example, black people sitting at a uh, at a Starbucks waiting to be served. Uh, police called on them because they're sitting there for too long. The police called in on people who were barbecuing in a park in, in uh, Oakland, or the police called uh, in many other instances of a, a woman who was a graduate student just studying uh, for her exams at, at Yale University. So these are about the boundaries that are set the enforcement of those boundaries and how everyone uh, ends up reacting or responding in order to survive in this caste system. You pepper your book, Isabel Wilkerson, cast with your own personal stories, and I was wondering if you can share some of them. One of them is how your um, 
your description of Cass fits into the story about you being followed by DEA agents. And another is when you go to interview a prominent person uh, as the national correspondent of The New York Times and what happened then. Begin with the DEA agents at the airport. Uh, well, this is a case in which I was just landing. Uh, both of these were as I, when I was a national correspondent for the New York Times. I, I landed uh, in Detroit uh, to a four-story, four and upon landing, because it was a, a day trip, I didn't have any luggage. I just was walking through the, the airport, and I noticed that there were these people who were walking alongside me, following me. I didn't know why they were there. Uh, eventually, uh, I continued to walk and, and pay no attention to them because I had to catch this uh, shuttle bus. And uh, upon... Uh, Upon reaching the shuttle bus, they followed me all the way there, and and uh, I asked them what what they were asking me questions as to what where I was coming from, uh, what I was doing there, uh, what where I was going to be staying, what I was doing, where where I was working, all of these questions that that didn't that that were shocking to me because I was just another passenger, just another business flyer, another business traveler trying to get to the shuttle bus in order to get to to the work that I needed, to, that I was in the city to do. And uh, they uh, followed me uh, all the way to the bus and, and said that they were DEA agents and they had to, they said that they were going to have to get on the bus with me and continue to follow me. So they surveilled me, uh, the, you know, through that, that situation, which is a very uh, uh, d demoralizing, disruptive uh, uh, heart-wrenching experience to be uh, identified uh, or uh, accused, essentially, just by, by their actions. And uh, they stayed uh, on that bus with me, uh, following me, watching me, uh, surveilling me in front of all the other business travelers. Uh, I alone was, was the only uh, African-American on the bus, the only African-American woman on the bus. So it was a, a, a very, very uh, painful experience to have that. I My response was to be what I was, which was to be uh, the, the journalist that I was. So I began to take notes. It was the only way that I could protect myself. I began to take notes uh, to note, note ev everything that they were doing, um, made notes of what they looked like. I, I did this as best I could, uh, working through my sense of, of both uh, fear and, and frustration and, and, um, and uh, terror, really, because I didn't know what was going to happen, how long, how far this would go. Uh, then upon, uh, when we reached the uh, rental car lot, um, I rose to, to leave and uh, they, they uh, allowed me to leave. They said, have a nice day. There had never been any reason for them to stop me to begin with, uh, but it was a terrifying experience uh, in, in a, in a, in a, in a a quiet, mundane way, an everyday way, the kind of thing that, that happens to people. Uh, so many things happen to people on the basis of just what they look like and the assumptions that accrue to what they look like, meaning race is the cue. What we look like is the cue, the signifier of where we fit, where we have been assigned in the caste system. And uh, this is what they, this was, a, these were the assumptions that they made about me. And it made for a disruption um, in, in, in the work that I was trying to do, and it's something that, that takes a very long time to recover from. And the story of going to interview uh, someone as a New York Times national correspondent and what happened when you met him. Yes, yeah, so uh, I had made arrangements to interview uh, a, a range of people uh, in one on one particular day for a fairly routine story. Uh, I called to make the appointments with all of these people, and I had no trouble uh, with anybody until I got to the last interview. Um, uh, there, I'd arrived at this uh, at this retail establishment that was very uh, quiet at that time of the day. There were no customers, and uh, there, I, I got there early, so I, I got there ahead of time for the to, for the interview with the store manager. And 
and um, the, the the clerk who directed me and said he's not here, he should be here any minute, and you can just wait here. And so uh, eventually, um, uh, a man comes in. He's running very late. Um, he uh, he's uh, frantic. He's anxious. He's you know taking his coat off, and I go up to him and introduce myself. Uh, because I know that the, the clerk said this is the man I was there to interview, and he his instant his response was I, I can't talk with you right now. I'm, I'm getting ready for a very important interview, and I said, well, I'm I'm the I'm the interview. I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times, and he said, well, how do I know that? And I, I said, well, I'm here. Uh, this is the time we're supposed to have our interview. In fact, we're late actually for this interview. I've been here waiting, and and he said, well, do you have a business card? And it so happened that because it had been all day that I'd been doing this, these interviews, I actually were at, was out of them by that time. So I, I said, no, I, I, I don't have an interview, but I, I don't have a business card, but I, I'm here uh, to interview you. And you know that we have this appointment and I talk with you over the phone. And he said, well, he said, well, do you have some kind of ID? And I said, I shouldn't have to give you ID. I, you know, I, I shouldn't have to give you ID, but I do have ID, and I handed him my, my driver's license. And he looked at the driver's license, and he said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it. And I said, we should be interviewing right now. We're already well into the time that we should be interviewing. This is a waste of time. We should be going ahead with our interview so that we can get this done. And he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because the New York Times will be here any minute, and I've got to get ready for it. And so I left. Uh, there, the New York Times walked out the door. And um, he didn't get included in the story because I couldn't interview. He didn't allow me to interview him. Um, and, and that was one of the other examples of how past can intrude upon everyday um, moments, meaning these assumptions that go with the placement and location of people in a society, assumptions about where, who should be doing what, who would be in what positions, the assumptions of what, uh, what the roles that we all have been assigned would be or should be or could be, and he uh, made these these assumptions on the basis of, of what what is the cue or signifier of caste in our country, and it hurts everyone in a situation like that because this is something that he was very excited to be in, to be interviewed as evidenced by the fact that he wanted to make sure that the, that he had the time to talk with the person that he was expecting to be the New York Times uh, reporter. And he was very excited about it, but he he did not he, he did not get in there obviously because the reporter he asked the reporter to leave. And then for me, uh, I uh, you know experienced the sense of of uh, of wondering what is it that had happened here, uh, trying to uh, figure out what now am I going to do, uh, how am I going to manage this, and then also just the the sense of of you know of, of heartbreak that yet again it's happened again uh and this is something that affects uh you know not just one person or two people in one interaction but magnify that or, or uh you know multiply this by millions of people who are just going about their day trying to do whatever they do in their work and to get disrupted in this way it, it, it has it has uh, ramifications for you know the entire society the entire economy that affects productivity and ability to get things done in, in a very competitive world. We don't have the time or the space to have people being disrupted in this way. Um, it hurts everyone when we have this, these kinds of in interactions that can be so fruitless for everyone. And Isabel Wilkerson, I wanted to ask you, we've, we've seen this enormous, uh, astonishing movement the past year in the wake of the killing of the police killing of George Floyd, and and we're seeing Confederate monuments toppled all across the country. You can't 
turn on the TV these days without seeing an advertisement by one major company or another uh, extolling diversity and and uh, and trumpeting that they support the Black Lives Matter movement. You have the NBA uh, resuming its games now with Black Lives Matter slogan painted on the hardwood of the basketball courts. Uh, could you talk about these symbolic measures versus the lack of a of a real movement toward removing the structural caste system, uh, the structures of the caste system that you write about? Well, I, I do believe that in recent months there have been there's been such a, a, a rise in awareness. I think that it, we could hopefully be perhaps on the cusp of an awakening, an awakening particularly uh, by those, by people who, because of how they're situated in the caste system, uh, again, through no uh, action on their part, you're born uh, to uh, to the, the, the rankings that, that we have in this country. Uh, that, that people who are not affected by this on a day-to-day -day basis have in recent months uh, and years been able to see uh, with the, the viral videos with so much attention on this to be able to see what they might not have been able to see otherwise. I mean, one of the re reasons why cast is such a powerful, um, you know, uh, uh, phenomenon is it's the kind of thing that you cannot see. I often describe um, cast as like, it's like, it's a building. It's like, a, you know, our country, like an old house that, that uh, where you, the, the pillars and the joists and the beams, we had nothing to, to do with the building of those things, but we now have inherited this old building known as, uh, as America. And we now have to think, figure out what do we do with the, with the, uh, the beams that may, may be uh, askew or the, the cracks in the foundation, then what do we do? And I think that now people are able to better see uh, what ha they had not been able to see before. If you think about the joists and the pillars and the beams in a, in a building, you can't see those. By, by definition, you don't see those. You see the walls and you see what's inside the building, but you don't see the structure of it. If there's an awareness of what the structure is, if there's an awareness of what we have inherited as, as, a, as a people, as a country, then perhaps there would be a way that people can finally come to begin to uh, address these issues, to, to look deeper than they otherwise have been called upon to do, and to recognize that this is something that not one, not one person, not one um, you know, politician, not, not even one election is enough to deal with. It takes everyone. If you think of this as an old house, and you know the the uh, that when there's a rains in the basement, you don't want to go in the basement because you don't want to know you don't want to face what the, what's going on in the basement after the rain. You don't go into that basement, but it's it's at your own peril. You will have to deal with what's in that basement, whether you whether you look or not. Not looking does not protect you from whatever is going on. And so, what I'm hoping is that all that has happened, and the effort of this book is just to shed light, to illuminate the divisions, to illuminate the origins of the divisions that we've inherited. That if we can see these things finally, perhaps we can collectively come together to figure out how to push through them. And it would take everyone because this has been going on for 400 years, and it will take everyone to address it, not one thing to address it, but everyone. You write, Isabel Wilkerson, try as it may to entice newcomers to take sides in upholding the hierarchy. The caste system fails to reach some people, some children of immigrants from the Caribbean, people like Eric Holder, Colin Powell, Malcolm X, Shirley Chisholm, Stokely Carmichael, among many others, have shared in the common plight of those in the lowest caste, become advocates for justice, and transcended these divisions for the greater good.
Joe Biden's choice for running mate, Kamala Harris, is the daughter of an Indian woman and a Jamaican man. Do you see her as one of those people whom the caste system um, has failed to reach? Is that possible? Well, I feel that the way that a caste system ascribes identity to you means that when you have multiple identities, that offers the opportunity uh, to be a bridge builder. It offers the opportunity to uh, to be able to transcend. You know, one of the, when I think about transcendence of caste, I often think about Albert Einstein, who arrived in this country um, just before the Nazis took over. He arrived here just in the nick of time, and upon arrival, he himself recognized. The, uh, that, that he had left one uh, brewing, uh, terrifying uh, hierarchy, but then also could see the see uh, uh, manifestations in the new country that he had, his new adopted home, and he took it upon himself to uh, identify with and feel empathy for and feel a connection for the people who have been assigned the bottom of the caste system uh, in the United States in his new adopted uh, home. And he here was the, a man who was the smartest man, perhaps, to, who, you know, who ever lived, who was rejecting the messaging that people who were, had been assigned to the lowest caste in the United States, he was rejecting the message that they were beneath him. He was rejecting the message that they were inferior to him, that they were less intelligent to him than he than he was. And when uh, when Marion when when Marion Anderson came uh, to uh, to uh, deliver a, um, a, a concert for a concert that she did in, in uh, Princeton, she he, she was not permitted to stay in the uh, Nassau Inn. Uh, after the concert, a, a magnificent concert, and he heard about this and invited her to stay with him. He did everything that he could to transcend the barriers that uh, he discovered existed, the walls of division that existed in his adopted country. And he, he made a point in, in his life where he did not have to d deliver uh, commencement addresses anymore, or, or, or uh, he refused to do that anymore because he no longer needed to. But he made an exception for Lincoln University, a historically black college, where he delivered uh, com a commencement address and actually taught students there uh, physics. I mean, he made the effort to transcend the boundaries that had been uh, the messaging that 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 uh, that that society sends to to all of us, and I think he offers a way to see how we can transcend these things. One of the the quotes that I use as as an uh, as an epigraph is one in which he says, "If if the white people, if the dominant group, in other words, could begin to see what is happening in the country, this would not long last," he said. And I think that the, that his words have tremendous power for us both at the time he said them, them uh, in, in the 20th century and for us in our current era. And as you quote in that book of uh, Albert Einstein in that speech, he said, the separation of the races is not a disease of the colored people, but a disease of the white people. I do not intend to be quiet about it. Finally, Isabel Wilkerson, how does capitalism fit into this whole structure of caste? Well, I, you know, I'm not a not a, a, an expert on on capitalism, but what I can say is that the origins of the, of the caste system grew out of the imperative that the colonists felt they had to build a country rapidly as cheaply as they possibly could, and that's what was the the origins of the of the. Uh, divisions that we now have, the hierarchy that we now, under whose shadow we now live, originated with this imperative to bring in people 
to work the land for free, to build the country for free, uh, and thus creating this hierarchy that we now live with. That is the, that has been the, uh, the, it has created a bottom tier of people with, that we have seen uh, uh, evidence in COVID-19 where the descendants of that of enslaved men and, uh, and people who look like them, people brown and black people were the ones who were most likely to be at risk for COVID-19 because they were the ones who were doing the frontline work. They were the ones doing the work, uh, the, the, the work that meant uh, stacking the shelves at, uh, at a uh, convenience store or a supermarket, uh, driving buses, being out in the public in the very early going of this of this uh, pandemic, and thus putting themselves at risk uh, and feeling the need to do this because that is the way the economy had been set up, and thus were the, the ones to suffer the most from contracting the, the virus and often uh, dying from the, the virus. So this is, the, this is one example of how the structure of the country, the infrastructure that we often cannot see but, but, but lays bare in much of the behaviors and, and circumstances of people uh, that, we, that we are seeing today, this is how it's had this long shadow that, that still hangs over us e even now. And I want to just end with a date. Um, in part one of our conversation, you talked about 2042 uh, being, according to the census, for the first time in American history, whites will no longer be um, in the majority in this country. You also talk about the year 2022. Why don't you end by describing the significance of this year in just two years? Yes, so uh, we will be coming upon a time when. Well, let me say that 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 no one will be alive at the point at which uh, African Americans will have been free for as long as they had been enslaved. So I want to I want to make sure that we are aware of just how long this history is, how long it has been that we have uh, been living with this uh, with the shadow of this caste system, and how long it may take for us yet to still. Uh, recover from it. We are in a space where there are projections to say that African Americans, uh, if, if we continue at the rate that we are, uh, the the gap in in wealth between uh, Black Af African Americans and their white counterparts uh, is ten to one at this point, and that at the, the way that we have currently, if we continue on the path, it will be take another two hundred and twenty eight years before uh, African Americans, who had been legally held back and excluded for, from the economy for much of their existence in this country, uh, will will reach parity with their white counterparts. So there are many many uh, ways of looking at this. Um, and I would hope that the way that we, what we take from this hopefully would be a recognition that we all have a stake in one another, that um, our future, de future depends on recognizing our common humanity, and not just for our country, but for our species and the planet. And just to underscore, you say 2022 will be the first year the United States will have been an independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on its soil. In two years. Yes, that's how long enslavement lasted. Do you believe in reparations of some sort? I do. I believe that uh, that when you learn the history of what happened to African Americans in this country, when you know uh, and learn about what uh, what Jim Crow actually meant, this rigid caste system in which everything that you could and could not do was based upon what you look like, and any breach of that caste system could mean your very life that African-Americans held back 
excluded by law from much of what we, from much of American history, in fact, most of American history, then African Americans fall clearly in the category of, of, of uh, being accorded uh, worthy of uh, reparations as have other groups in this country and elsewhere who have uh, suffered uh, and endured exclusion and, and uh, in fact, atrocities uh, at the hands of, of, of the state. And so I believe that there should be reparations, emphasis, emphasis on repairing, on repairing, and also uh, necessarily and importantly alongside it, education, education to make sure that all Americans know the true history of, of our country, truly know what has come before us, truly go in to, to, to the basement, uh, you know, to inspect it, no matter even though how difficult it may be, we may not want to see it, but it's necessary for our, for our uh, success and for our survival, not just of ourselves as a country, but also as a species. Isabel Wilkerson, I want to say thank you so much for spending this time. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, winner of the National Humanities Medal. Her latest book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. To see part one of our discussion, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, sure, the United States has been conducting the census for some two centuries now, but Donald Trump and his cronies have a new idea of how to do it that involves, no points for guessing, screwing it up entirely in service to a racist, nativist project, using methods that are, yes, unconstitutional, but can still have an impact anyway, leaving everyone who knows anything about the census or statistics or democracy shaking their damn heads. We'll talk about the White House's transparent campaign to sabotage the 2020 census with civil rights attorney Liz O'Young. That's coming up, but first, a look back at recent press. Since the police murder of George Floyd, protesters for racial justice have again mobilized across the country and attracted what counts for serious attention from media commentators. But while corporate media talk about the country reckoning with or engaging the white supremacy and racist police violence the uprisings are protesting, that hasn't meant they were genuinely interested in changing the conversation around those issues. How can you tell? It's based not on who shows up in background video footage or person-on-the-street soundbites, but when it's time to talk about meaning, who gets to speak? So Loretta Graceffo, a fair intern and correspondent for Waging Nonviolence, looked at whose voices were featured in some of the most prominent and influential outlets and wrote it up for FAIR.org. Graceffo's count included columnists in the Washington Post and New York Times editorial sections, as well as people interviewed on network Sunday morning political talk shows, including ABC's This Week, CBS's Face the Nation, CNN's State of the Union, Fox News Sunday, and NBC's Meet the Press. 
And establishment media overwhelmingly turned to columnists, pundits, and government officials for interpretation of the uprisings, rather than to the activists facing tear gas on the front lines. So protesters were denied the chance to present their demands in their own words, and the voices of those most impacted by police brutality went unheard. The opinion columns of The Times and The Post were dominated by vague calls for justice and reform, mainly from neoliberal elites. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, May 25th to June 16th, the Washington Post published 89 op-eds discussing race, policing, and the uprisings at length. Some of the articles had more than one author, so it added up to 97 authors altogether. Of those, 61% were columnists for The Post. 39% were outside writers. Breaking down those outside writers... Current or former government officials were 34 percent, academics another 30 percent, and 18 percent were freelance journalists. Sixteen percent of the Post's guest writers worked in the criminal justice system, including the civil rights attorney for the Floyd family and Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore. There were also a former federal prosecutor, a public defender, a police officer, and a former deputy chief of police, along with one writer whose father owns a restaurant that caught fire during the protest. In the same three weeks, the New York Times published 83 op-eds discussing George Floyd and the protests, with a total of 87 writers. 56% of those were Times columnists. 44% were outside sources. Of those outside sources, 37% were academics, 24% freelancers, and 18% current or former government officials. 5% of those outside sources were people in the criminal justice system, Marilyn Mosby again, another chief of police, and then 5%, in fact, were activists. So the upshot is, across both major papers, in a total of 172 op-eds, only two organizers of the protests under discussion were afforded a platform. So that's something like 1% of the columns in the wake of these protests that everyone agrees have had a vast social impact were written by the people who actually instigated them. Even as the Washington Post churned out numerous articles comparing today's domestic upheaval with that of the 1960s, veterans from past movements for racial justice, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Red Power Movement, or the Chicano Movement, none of them were given space to share the wisdom gained from their years of organizing against white supremacy. As a result, Graceffo notes, none of the op-eds published in the Times or the Post explored the idea of boycotts, strikes, direct action campaigns, or any other disruptive tactics protesters might use to leverage their power during this unprecedented moment. The op-ed sections of the Times and the Post were lacking not only in historical insight from organizers, but also in global insight. The police murder of George Floyd sparked uprisings against racism, police brutality, and state violence around the world, prompting countries to grapple with their own colonial pasts and with ongoing inequalities exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. But despite those outpourings of solidarity from protesters across Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America, the New York Times and the Washington Post presented exclusively U.S. perspectives. 
Activists weren't the only ones overlooked by the opinion sections of the nation's two leading papers. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, neither the Times nor the Post featured any op-eds written by the people who have suffered most directly at the hands of America's racist law enforcement, those who've experienced police brutality or people who've had loved ones murdered by police. Nor did they elevate the viewpoints of any people who are incarcerated, even though many incarcerated writers have been sharing their experiences publicly for years. Corporate media's unwillingness to provide protesters a platform was very evident on those Sunday morning talk shows. Graceffo found that in the two weeks after Floyd's police murder, out of the 54 one-on-one and roundtable guests on all the networks, 63% were current or former government officials. The next most frequent guests were journalists, that was 24%, and three of the official guests... DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and Attorney General William Barr denied the irrefutable fact that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. On all three of those occasions, those patently false claims went virtually unchallenged by journalists who posed the question as though it were a matter of opinion. Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, appeared on NBC's Meet the Press on June 7th, making her, across all networks, the only person affiliated with Black Lives Matter who was given time to speak. As Graceffo notes, the problem lies not only in which guests are afforded a platform, but also, and as a natural result, in the framing of the coverage and the questions that were asked. So throughout all the coverage, there was heavy focus on whether the protests were violent or nonviolent, rather than on the actual demands of the protesters. Protests that targeted property were rarely referred to in neutral terms. It was a subtle way of limiting the range of acceptable opinion. Most networks denounced the Trump administration's violent suppression of protesters, but the government officials responsible for deploying tear gas, tanks, and secret police were given ample airtime on network news to defend their use of these methods, while the protesters who supported destroying property, for example, were not given that time. This silencing makes clearer than anything how democracy dies in darkness is really only branding for corporate media who have zero intention of even acknowledging their gatekeeping role, much, much, much less handing the mic to the people who are pushing actual change. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The coronavirus pandemic had already added difficulties to the 2020 census. Now the Census Bureau says workers will only have until September 30th to solicit responses, despite having previously established a deadline of October 31st. The maneuver follows the Trump White House's insertion of two new political appointments into the Census Bureau, whose job descriptions it won't make public, and Trump's order in late July calling for excluding undocumented immigrants from the census count used to apportion congressional representation. Given the transparently political nature of these actions, headlines like one in the New York Times expressing worry 
worry that they might lead to a botched count seem needlessly delicate. Here to talk about efforts to hijack the 2020 census and resistance to those efforts is longtime civil rights attorney and advocate Liz O'Young. She serves as a consultant on the census to community-based organizations and adjunct professor at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race and New York University's Department of Social and Cultural Analysis. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Liz O'Young. Thank you. It's unfortunate that I'm back for these reasons. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, when we spoke with you in November of 2018, the Trump administration was trying to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census over the vehement objection of not just immigrant advocates, but statisticians and previous census directors. The Supreme Court ultimately shot that down, though I'm reminded only by five to four. But what we're seeing now, and this executive order in particular, it's it's just that same effort back again, right? It is, but the Trump administration is using its abuse of its executive powers in a way that's even more direct by orders to the Census Bureau to do certain things, which is just going to wind itself back in the courts again. But I think what's even appalling is just the continual attempt to try to instill fear among immigrants in completing the census. This is yet another attempt after the community successfully rallied against getting the citizenship question off the census. With less than two months or three months, we are in August, September, October, left to complete the census. He tries yet again to instill fear in people in completing it. And what makes it outrageous, just simply outrageous, the abuse of power here is that the Census Bureau's own experts their own seasoned, long-time employees said in April of this year that they were not able to, because of COVID-19, complete the census in a timely and accurate way so that they requested that the deadline for self-completion be extended until October 31st. And then for this administration to not only, one, defy what the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 and try with directives to the Census Bureau to exclude undocumented aliens from the apportionment base, but then also to abruptly shorten the deadline from the extended one to October 31st because of the challenges of COVID-19, and then move it up to September 30th, which is less than a month and a half, what's approximately a month and a half away. When the Census Bureau's own people said in April, there's no way that they can do an accurate census, and so they wanted the deadline for self reporting to be extended to October 31st, and they wanted the deadline for reporting to the president the apportionment numbers 
from the end of December to April 30th, 2021, that they would not have enough time to complete and get these results to the president, whoever it is, following this election by December 31st. And they requested a extension until April 30th, 2021. And so to blatantly ignore the Supreme Court's ruling, ignore the Census Bureau's own employees' determination that it could not be done in an accurate and an efficient way is amazing, especially because this is a survey that is the most cited for statistics. It is a national survey. Businesses, government, local cities, state, federal, all based information and planning based on the 2020 census. As critical to that is redistricting, an attempt to politicize it so that people do not complete the census, so that political lines can be drawn to favor one party, and a complete obstruction of power and justice, and all in the name of representative democracy. There's nothing more autocratic than this usurpation of power that both the Supreme Court and the people were successful in getting the citizenship question off the census. It's just outrageous. Well, and it sounds as though directing commerce, which runs the census, to exclude undocumented immigrants, that's just unconstitutional, isn't it? I mean, legally, it's a non-starter. And I do want to say that that doesn't mean it won't have an impact. But there's no way that that passes constitutional muster. The Constitution and the 14th Amendment are pretty clear about this, aren't they? They are. It's supposed to be a count of all persons living in the state. And you can turn a blind eye, but there are more than 11 million undocumented persons living in the United States. And they're contributing to the statistics that lead to the growth of businesses, as to planning, et cetera. I mean, they're very much an integral part of this country, you know, whether as essential workers and you name it, to keep this economy thriving. And so their numbers definitely should be counted as far as planning goes. So the Constitution is very clear that it is a count of all persons living in the state. And so and they are definitely persons. It's not like they didn't think about it, you know. They had thought about it. We'd been through the three-fifths of a person thing. There was an understanding that you needed to have an accurate picture of who was in the states, regardless of their, their citizenship status. It's not like they didn't think about it. Right, and it goes, again, to accuracy. It goes to civic participation, that all persons were interdependent. We are interconnected. The sentence is supposed to be apolitical, and there's a reason for that. You have to have reliable data. You have both Republican and Democrat businesses. You have, particularly now with health care, we are interdependent upon each other, and our survival and our health is dependent on a collective responsibility of everybody living in this country. And not to have an accurate count is shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, let me ask just a little about the mechanics of it, because pushing up the deadline, that concretely means that some people 
And not just any people, but those people who are historically undercounted, those that are hardest to reach, there's the folks who maybe just won't get counted at all if we shorten up the time. And they're the ones that need to be counted because they're the ones that stand the most to lose from a loss of money from federal programs that they may benefit from. We're talking most specifically about small children. So many federal programs go to nutritional programs for children, Head Start, CHIP, Title I schools, you name it. And similarly, there's sizable money dedicated for programs regarding housing. So low-income renters are at risk. We're talking about those with English language issues, people from rural areas, urban areas, densely populated areas, hard-to-reach communities. Also, the areas hit hardest by COVID-19, African and Latino, poor communities, and the mortality rate as a result of COVID-19, disproportionate to wealthier areas. And so they're being hit doubly by COVID-19. And then after an underreporting, not being able to receive critical services. And so to shortchange that when community-based organizations have relied on that information and broadcasted it to their community that you have until October 31st because of COVID-19 to complete the census. And now it's being changed. And who's going to get that knowledge out to the community? More confusion, Um, more confusion. More confusion and more confusion leads to more distrust. There's already a great deal of skepticism about, is this information going to be confidential? You know, what's going to be done with this information, et cetera, et cetera. And with this administration and its record of deceit, you just don't know. Then to add to that changing deadlines and rules, not even midway, you know what I mean? We're talking less than two and a half months originally, and then trying to, again, exclude undocumented from the census. It's a deliberate attempt to instill fear in everyone being able to participate in the most basic of civic responsibilities, and that's completing the census. Well, let me just ask you a mechanical question that a lot of folks might not know about. If the census workers can't If they're shut down from getting to talk to people, from door knocking or from getting people to self-report, if that ends, they do use methods to kind of guesstimate the folks they didn't get to. And that can introduce another level of erasure, right? Erasure and inaccuracy. Yep. The more you try to use other mechanisms besides self-response, direct self-response, then it increases the level of inaccuracy, especially in places like New York City, where it is so diverse. For instance, if people, because of COVID-19, are afraid to open their doors to strangers, knocking on their doors, enumerators, census enumerators, then one of the ways they do it is try to impute data. And they look at data in the area, socioeconomic data in the area. That's one thing that they can look at to tried to impute who might live at this house, what race might live at this house, what age group might live at this house. And so you look at records, government records, but not everyone has completed certain government records. The level of imputation becomes less and less reliable. And 
it's just unbelievable because a survey that is most cited by scientists, by business, by government is going to be fraught with inaccuracy. And planning is all going to be based on inaccurate information. And that can just open up such a Pandora's box of error upon error upon error. Well, we we are outraged. We're like flabbergasted. But we're also in a way not surprised because this administration has telegraphed every move about this. They haven't hidden their racist and nativist priorities. So let's talk a little bit about the forces of resistance to these racist and anti-democratic efforts from the White House. There are lawsuits, there are legislators, there are groups. I mean, folks are ready to, to push back against this. They are ready. There is right now, and people should be supporting, efforts to get Congress to pass legislation that would make it very clear because Congress has authority over the census to extend the deadline of the results being reported to the president, whoever it is, end of December, to put in statute what the original request of the Census Bureau employees, experts were in April of this year to extend the statutory deadline from the end of December to April 30th, and then subsequently to get the numbers to state for pre-apportionment by the end of July. And so I hope that Congress will pass that and put this to rest. And in support of this legislation are four former Census Bureau directors, Republican and Democrat alike, who have said that it is impossible to complete the census given COVID-19 by the end of December and that these statutory deadlines must be extended in light of the horrific situation our country is dealing with. People are focused on surviving and not completing the census right now. And it's a very difficult time. Yeah. And everyone recognizes that, but this administration. Everyone but this administration will just finally, the word erasure gets thrown around. But this really is that, you know, this is an effort to disappear some people, you know, to, to take them out of the mirror that we hold up to the country. You really can't underestimate the damage of that, uh, material damage, resource damage, but also a kind of like psychic damage, a kind of damage to our knowledge and our self-understanding, if you will. This is this is about erasure. You know, and it adds to the divisiveness that this country does not need right now. You know, I mean, we need to be united to fight COVID-19. We need to be united to fight institutional racism. And then to add this feeling of not counting, they're not included at a time when this country needs to come together to add insult again to injury. The undocumented community is the one that are at the forefront with other essential workers, other food providers, delivery workers, etc., making this country run during a pandemic. And then to say they don't count, you know, they're invisible. I think one thing that you also pointed to, Janine, is we are heading towards a depression, maybe. Our economy in a major recession right now because of COVID-19. This is not the time at all to squander resources. 
and the effort this administration has gone through to waste so much time and money on lawsuits that are so obvious, but yet spending so many people's resources to fight is to me criminal. There are millions of people without jobs now. Small businesses are folding left and right. And this administration is, in the face of it all, just wasting so many of our resources on something that is so black and white in our Constitution. And the effort that it will go to politicize it is just shocking. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney and advocate Liz O. Young. She's a consultant on the census to community-based organizations. If you haven't already, you can fill out the census at my2020census.gov. Liz O. Young, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.